week, we kind of took a little branch from our study in Colossians to this little letter. Because in Colossians chapter 4, remember Paul is sending greetings from some of the men who are helping uh, in the ministry there Paul has while he's in prison in the city of Rome. And uh, one of the men that he mentions is a young man named Onesimus. We learn a little bit about Onesimus from the Colossians 4 passage. We learn that he's a trustworthy young man. And as we go through and talk more about him, you'll see that he hasn't always been that way. Uh, God has done a work in this young man's life to take him from what appears to be uh, thievery to trustworthiness. And Paul now says, he is faithful to me. And having the idea of Paul... uh, or or of Onesimus having a special ministry to the apostle himself. He's obviously faithful to God, Onesimus is, in the ministry, but but Onesimus seems to have a a particular uh, helping ministry for the apostle Paul. Uh, He is loved by Paul deeply and dearly. He calls him a son. Uh, He is... He is almost like another Timothy to Paul. He is one of these young men that Paul has had the privilege of leading to a saving knowledge of Christ and now leading to Christ-likeness. And according to history, according to what we know uh, outside of what the Bible literature tells us, uh, Onesimus goes on to be uh, one of the most important church leaders in, in early church days, in church history times. And so he was a well-loved young man and, and, and grew to be a great leader in the church. We also find out from what Paul says about him in Colossians 4 is, is that he is from the city of Colossae. Now, there are many specific details that are left out of this young man's story. We're going to fill in some of them from the book of Philemon. But, to bring you to where we are in this letter, from Colossians to where we are now here. Apparently, Onesimus worked in the household as a slave, as a household slave, for this man, Philemon. And from what we can see, as far as what Paul says about him, based upon Paul says, if he's taken anything from you, if he owes you anything, I will restore it, I'll pay it. Apparently, Onesimus has stolen some things from Philemon, from the home. In order to not pay the penalty of a slave who is a thief, which is death, He escapes Colossae, so to speak. He leaves the city and he goes to the largest city where he can blend in and never be met. That's Rome. And you can see the hand, the sovereign hand of God working in all of this situation because somehow when Onesimus gets to Rome, he meets the Apostle Paul. Now, no doubt he knew that name. 
Because Philemon himself is also a convert of Paul's ministry. Philemon and his family, his wife and his son, are, are vital to the ministry. As a matter of fact, the church in Colossae meets in their house. And so Onesimus would have heard the name Paul, the apostle's name mentioned often. And when, when he meets up with Paul in Rome... He falls under conviction of his own sin and becomes a child of God. And now, Paul is writing to Philemon. And he's saying to him, I want you to forgive Onesimus. I want you to take him back, not as a slave, but as a brother who is restored to fellowship. I want you to forgive him. Now the fact is, again, if you remember, a man named Tychicus and this young man Onesimus are given the letters that Paul has written to the church at Colossae, to the church at Ephesus, and another letter that's not recorded in the canon of Scripture to a church in Laodicea. They are to take those letters and deliver them to the churches. So you have what I would consider a very dramatic meeting when Tychicus and Onesimus knock on the door of the home of Philemon and when Philemon comes to the door, here stands Tychicus holding out this letter from the apostle and, and their eyes meet and no doubt there is at that point some tension, some trepidation but that meeting will end up in restoration. Because Philemon will forgive. The theme of this letter is forgiveness. Last week, we challenged you by thinking, beginning to think about what happens when we don't forgive. What happens in our own hearts if we refuse to forgive those who have wronged us? Everybody in this building has been treated unfairly at some time in your life. You have been treated wrongly by someone. You have been betrayed uh, by someone. You have been sinned against by someone in some, one way or another. It's happened to every one of us. And so it's somewhere along the line in our Christian experience, we have had to face this issue of choosing to forgive or being unwilling to do so. What happens in our own souls when we are unwilling to forgive? So last week we started talking about some precautions related to forgiveness, and that being an unwilling spirit, an unwilling heart to forgive. What happens in us? We, remember we talked about how that if we're unwilling to forgive, that unforgiving spirit produces bitterness. We talked about this unwillingness to forgive being the seed which produces the root of bitterness that Hebrews chapter 12 talks about springing up 
troubling us and thereby many being defiled. And so if you right now can think of someone against whom you are still harboring resentment, when that person's name is mentioned, you just get all tense even thinking about them because all you do is remember this, how that they sinned against you, remember how that they hurt you, and you have yet to be willing to forgive them, to release their debt, to write across the debt that they owe you, totally forgiven, completely forgiven. You've not taken that arrow of forgiveness and shot it so high in the air, or excuse me, not forgiveness, but the, the, the sin that they've committed against you, you've shot that so high and so far, you'll never see it again, never, never come across it again. You've not taken that pot that represents how they've sinned against you and smashed it to a thousand pieces so it can never be put back together again. And bitterness has sprung up in your heart. Well, this morning we're going to go on and talk about another thing. Another effect of an unforgiving spirit. And this one, this one I hope will shake you if this is going on in your life. Let me preface it by saying this. There are some who now teach that we as Christians can be possessed by demons. I don't know if you've ever come across teaching like that. Maybe, maybe seen preachers on TV or heard, read books. There are some who teach that we as believers can, can be possessed by demons. Let me say this to you. That is not right according to what the scripture teaches. When the Holy Spirit lives in you, no demon can. But we can be influenced and oppressed by Satan and all his forces. And we as believers will at times open the door to their attack. And the Bible makes specifically clear that an unforgiving spirit opens the door to the devil to work in our lives. Let me say it again. An unforgiving spirit opens the door for the devil to work in our lives. And can I say it this way? To use us as a tool in His hands. Let's pray again. Father, I realize that what I'm about to teach and preach is going to be opposed by your enemy and our enemy. And I pray that you would forbid him from in any way whatsoever interfering with, with what you want to accomplish in our lives this morning. Some people in this room may have already put up a wall of resistance. Lord, would you help them to see that they're, they're just opening the door for the devil to have his way in their life? 
I pray, Father, that today you would drive out any influence he might have. And would you warm stony cold hearts and give grace to make those unforgiving hearts willing to forgive. God, I admit to you that I cannot do this by myself. I desperately need your help this morning. I'm not smart enough. I'm not eloquent. Lord, I don't know enough to be able to be effective in what I'm doing. But I pray and depend upon the power of your word to do its work. I trust you to accomplish all you desire. Make us willing to obey. And I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read just a couple of verses here in our text in Philemon. To kind of set the groundwork for what Paul is asking this man to do. Let's start at verse number one. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier in the church in thy house. Aphia is Philemon's wife, Archippus is their son. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And may I remind you, that when Paul says that, he is not just being friendly. He's not, he's not just saying like we say when we send emails or write letters, dear so-and-so, or finish our letters sincerely, or have a great day. No, when he says grace and peace to you, there's a reason he does that. He is saying, if you want grace, if you want peace... I'm going to tell you how to get it. And he's also saying for you to be able to do what I'm going to ask you to do, you're going to need grace to do this. I think, my God, verse 4, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoy thee, that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Paul says to him, to Philemon, this young man has wronged you. I want you to forgive him. Let me say to you, some of you have been wronged by parents, children, spouses, employers, friends. 
you have been wronged, it's time to forgive. Because if you are unwilling to do so, you are opening yourself to the devil's influence in your life. Let me show you what I mean. Would you take your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4? These are passages we've looked at before and other times that we've discussed the issue of anger and bitterness. Let's begin our reading at verse number 26. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. And when Paul mentions this idea of not giving place to the devil, it's not as if he is saying, number one, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Number two, don't give place to the devil. It's as if he's saying this. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, because if you do, you will give place to the devil. If you refuse to deal with your anger, you are opening yourself up for the devil's influence in your life. In other words, and he'll mention in chapter number 6, when he's discussing the, the armor of God, what, what Paul is saying here is an, an angry and unforgiving spirit makes us an open target for the fiery darts of the wicked one. And when he, when he talks about not letting the sun go down on your wrath, folks, he is not just using a, a, a symbolism. He is speaking literally. In other words, a day should not end. Any time in our life, a day should not end with us still having an angry spirit. We should never pillow our heads to sleep if we have anger issues if we have uh, resentment or bitterness in our life. Don't go to sleep angry. The idea of that word place in verse number 27 is the idea of opportunity or power or giving an occasion for carrying out plans. Do you understand that the devil has a plan for every one of your lives? God has a plan for you, and obviously that's the one we want to live by. But the devil also has ways that he wants to use your life to accomplish his demonic purposes. The devil wants to use each of you as a tool and ultimately, what he wants for you and I to do is to shame the name of Christ. 
He wants to do all he can to diminish the glory of God. He wants to do all he can to make God look bad in this world. We have examples of how he did that with Bible characters. One of the most dramatic is David. A year or so after David's adultery and cover-up with murder of his affair, a year or so after that, Nathan, God's man, God's prophet, comes to David and shares a parable with him about a, about a, a, a man who has a, a, a very precious little lamb. He's, he's taking care of this lamb and eats at his table and he treats it like one of his children. And, and this, this, this man who has that precious little lamb that he loves dearly also has a neighbor who has many different sheep. He has large herds of sheep. And that man has a visitor who comes by. And rather than taking one of his own sheep, he sneaks to his neighbor's house, steals that little lamb that that man loves dearly, takes it, butchers it, feeds it to his visitor. And obviously David, having at one time been a shepherd, his anger boils over and he says, The man that did this should restore fourfold. And Nathan says, You're the man, David. You're the man. You took what was precious to your riding for yourself. And now you're going to restore fourfold. Number one, his baby dies. Number two, his daughter is defiled by her own brother and that brother will be put to death. Number three, he's going to lose the kingdom to his own son, Absalom. Number four, Absalom is going to die. And I can just imagine every tragedy that comes along in David's life, he remembers fourfold. The first punishment, David's baby died. There is a very specific pronouncement by the prophet as to why that's going to happen. Nathan says, David, because you've given great occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme, the child that is born unto thee is going to die. Here's the application, folks. Nathan says to David, David, what you did by murdering Uriah, what you did by committing adultery with Bathsheba, what you've done by hiding your sin and covering it up now for a year or so, is you've given the enemies of God that live all around the promised land, all around the, the, the uh, Jerusalem and, and all around the kingdom where God's people dwell, you've given all of the enemies of God a reason to think the wrong way about God. David, you've given God a bad name. Now folks, bring that into your own life. Bring that thought into your own life. Are you known at work, or at home, or at school, or wherever, in your neighborhood, are you known as the hothead? 
Are you known as the person that people don't want to be around because they say the wrong thing? You're going to pop off. You're the person who seems like you're just a smoldering bomb waiting to explode. Let me ask you something. Do you realize that that, if that is the way you live, you are giving God a bad name? You're helping the devil make God look bad. You're furthering the devil's cause of taking away from the glory of God. He's using you like a puppet. And you've opened the door for him to do that. The devil has taken the high ground in your life if you are harboring resentment or bitterness. He's taken the high ground in your life and he's he's unleashing attack on your God, on your Savior. And you open the door. Do not, please, do not let this day end. Do not let the sun go down today before getting rid of your bitterness. Asking God to forgive your anger before you are forgiving those you need to forgive. But can I show you another effect here? Along this same line of how the devil can use an unforgiving spirit. This, the, the first example we gave from Ephesians 4 is how he uses you specifically. How he, how he takes advantage of you specifically. But just like bitterness that we talked about last week in Hebrews 12, how it springs up in your life and then it affects other people. Can I show you an example of how your unforgiving spirit is going to be used in a very specific way, in a very specific place by the devil. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to begin our reading at verse number 10. I'm going to read I'm going to read from our text in the King James translation. I'm going to read another translation. Again, not to diminish the King James, but to emphasize some of the things that we see here. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. Now let me again, let me just kind of remind you what's going on here. Paul wrote in the book of first, the, the first letter, first Corinthians, he wrote to the church of Corinth for several different reasons. The, they had some questions about some things that were going on in the church. And so over in chapter number seven, he begins to answer those questions. But the first, first few chapters, Paul is going to deal very specifically with some sin that is going on in the church. There is, there is immorality, wicked, gross, Immorality that, that even, even wicked Corinthian people, the, the city of Corinth was known for its, its debauchery, its, its immorality, and, and Paul says, what you've got going on in the church, even these wicked Corinthians don't do this kind of thing. 
And so Paul deals very specifically with this sin issue, and he says to these to this church, that person needs to be put out of the church. They need to take, go through what we would call church discipline so that they can get right with God. Put them out of the church. Now, he writes this book, 2 Corinthians, to say, he's repented, now you take him back. In other words, forgive him. And that's why he says, if you have forgiven him, I have too. I, I'm with you on this. My heart, my heart is your heart. I, I, if you've forgiven him, I've forgiven him. Then he goes on and says, For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave it I in the person of Christ. In other words, the reason that I forgave is because you did and because Christ has forgiven all of us. It's for his sake that I've forgiven. And you should too. And then he says this, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now let me read another translation, emphasizing again, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be, listen, outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So the idea of Satan getting advantage of us really means that he's outwitting us. Meaning, he's using you. One of the primary tools of the devil to destroy churches is one believer with an unforgiving spirit. Now notice, Paul says, you need to forgive. Because if we're not willing to forgive, Satan will get an advantage. And he's outwitting you. He, he's destroying the church from within. And you don't even know he's using you to do that. Folks, I find this sobering and troubling. That an unforgiving spirit can literally blow a church wide open. Destroy it from within. Abraham Lincoln once said about the United States of America, if this nation falls, it will not fall from being attacked from those abroad. It will fall from enemies within. And my friend, if this church or any church dies, it could be that it dies from within. And if you are a person, or if I'm a person who has an unforgiving spirit, we may be the plant that the devil has put here. To destroy the church from within. An unforgiving spirit in a church literally opens that church up to the devil's attack. And I would plead with you don't let the devil fool you. Don't let him outwit you. 
Don't let him use you to destroy the church from within. I've told you before about one of my heroes, Dr. Monroe Parker. <coughs> Dr. Parker was in a revival ministry, traveling ministry from the early, from the late 20s, really up until his death in uh, the mid-90s. Uh, the Lord used him tremendously uh, in, in, in many different places. One place that he went was called, the, the city was Revere, Kentucky. I actually have a, a pastor's, a, a pastor friend who's, who can trace his family, faith family, his spiritual family back to that revival service that I'm going to tell you about in Revere, Kentucky. He can trace his, his father or his grandfather, great grandfather, uh, his great grandfather came to Christ in that meeting, and, and now he is pastoring, uh, and, and knows this story very well. On the way to this particular revival meeting, he and his wife were traveling the train on the train to get there, and on the train itself, there was a man who started flirting with Dr. Parker's wife, and Dr. Parker. Uh, was a powerful man. He was one of the only, he was one of only three men in the world at the time that this happened who could literally from a shoulder punch move 3,500 pounds. Jack Vinci was another. So he takes this man's arm. The guy's got his arm over the back and he's flirting with his wife. He takes this man's arm and he says, Sir, I suggest you turn around and talk to my wife. And the guy gets a little heated with him and, and Dr. Parker has to persuade him a little more, but he got the message. So finally the guy starts talking to Dr. Parker and he says to him, So where are you going? He says, We're going to Bevere, Kentucky to preach Jesus. He says, So you mean you're going to hell? And Dr. Parker said, No, you're going to hell if you don't know Jesus. He said, No, you don't understand. They call Bevere, Kentucky, hell because it's such a wicked place. When the Parkers arrived in Bevere, Kentucky, they got off the train and were met by several people from the church and they rushed them to the church where they were having a prayer meeting. When Dr. Parker walked into the prayer meeting, people all over the church were praying that the preacher in the revival, or the revival wouldn't get killed. Because not too long before Dr. Parker got there, another preacher was standing in the pulpit and was shot dead while he stood there. So Dr. Parker said he's prayed right along with those folks. Don't let the preacher get killed. Well, God began to work in that little place. And it ended up that the mines would close for an afternoon service. And all the miners would come, but, but there was also a spirit of resistance. Some people were responding, some people were coming to Christ, but, but it just seemed like there was something that was keeping the hand of God from being able to, to work completely. And 
One of their afternoon services, Dr. Parker said, I'm not going to preach today. I, I, I want to hear some testimonies. And, and some people would stand up and, and talk about how they'd come to Christ in the meeting and, and, and how they rejoiced in, in what was going on. And finally, finally, toward the end of the service, uh, an older gentleman in sort of midways to the back uh, stood up and, and he was, he, this was early enough in the, in, in the 1900s that this man was a Civil War veteran. And he, he said, I've been praying for years that this church would see revival. And he said, I believe we're beginning to see it. And he talked about how he'd come to Christ and he was just rejoicing in what God was doing. And, and, and at the end of that service, Dr. Parker, stood down front and he said, I tell you what, folks, let me, I, I just feel like we need to do this. Pastor, would you come stand with me? And he called that brother, that, that, that older Civil War veteran, he said, if you want to be in heaven, because that brother had said, I, you know, I don't know how much longer I have, but I'm going to pass over Jordan soon, and I'm going to see my Savior, but I'm glad I got to see this before... Dr. Parker said, you come down and you stand with us. And if you're here and you want to see brother so-and-so in heaven, you come down and shake our hands. So people began to stream down the aisle and they came by and shook his hand. And Dr. Parker said, I was watching and there was another older gentleman who sat on this side of the church. And that man started making his way down and he shook the pastor's hand. He shook Dr. Parker's hand. He got to the old veteran. He looked him in the eye and walked away. That older man looked at this other guy as he was walking away. And finally he called his name, Brother So-and-so. And that brother came back over. And that older man extended his hand. And the man who had looked him in the face and walked away suddenly broke into tears and grabbed him and hugged him. Dr. Parker said, what's going on? He asked the preacher, what's going on? The pastor said, those two men were both in the Civil War. And one day, years after the war was over, they got in an argument over what Lee should have done at Gettysburg. And they haven't spoken to each other since. After that encounter, God began to work. Miners came to Christ. Bars were closed because there was no more business. Levere, Kentucky became known as a place where God lived. They stopped calling it hell. Now can you imagine the power of the devil that was vanquished two men who were unwilling to forgive each other finally did. Can you imagine now the power of Satan that could be vanquished if you and I would be willing to forgive. Would you bow your heads with me please and close your eyes.